the question. It's like a sneeze. And so the syllables, the syllables on the chick, Poochigian. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the program. Tonight, I'll be joined by critically acclaimed and award-winning poet and author, Aaron Pugigian. Aaron, I got it wrong, didn't I? <laughs> Pugigian, Mr. Pugigian, earned a Ph.D. in classics from the University of Minnesota and an MFA in poetry from Columbia University. His latest poetry collection, American Divine, the winner of the Richard Wilbur Award, came out in 2021. His thriller in verse, Mr. Either Slash or was released by Etruscan or Etruscan Press in the fall of 2017. And the sequel, Mr. Either Slash Or, All the Rage, is available now. You know, there's so much more that I could say about this accomplished man, incredibly accomplished man. But I'd like to bring him on instead so he can speak for himself. Aaron, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Michael. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. You can tell I'm already excited about hearing your work. <laughs> Haven't had an opportunity to read your work. I want to talk about it. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, all right, sir. What is this? Is, I'll, I'll give a brief introduction. Um, <laughs> the poem describes in the first section a, a hurricane um, that is descending slowly on Manhattan. Here it is off Cape Hatteras, um, yes, in um, the center of the eastern seaboard. Um, you, I should explain, are the hero of the novel. While you are snoring up a storm, your mouth ajar and drooling in the hours toward dawn, a real and raucous storm is going on east of Manhattan and a short flight south in the renowned graveyard of the Atlantic. Brisk as a race car, giddy, corabontic, its central swirl is scattering the doubloons of pirate troves across the ocean floor. Already arms of it have swung ashore at lonesome Cape Hatteras, breached the dunes and turned the choicest real estate to water. Wake up! Wake up! There is a squall as wide as Texas coming for you. On you snore. Dreaming your hands are out to catch a daughter, descending, squealing, a tornado slide. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Before we delve into that reach, Pete, what is poetry to you, my friend? What is poetry? I always think about it in terms of magic and incantation. 
that there is the normal world we operate, um, the world in which we speak prose and send emails and have to sign contracts and sign up for health insurance. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there is this special space for language. And in magic, um, it's usually represented, you draw a sacred circle, a circle on the ground, and that marks off everything that's outside the circle from inside the circle and inside the circle magic can happen and um is um the word incantatory um the tone that people use when uttering the words of a spell and it is not the tone or even the rhythm one uses in normal language but it sets apart um what is being said as special um as magic. Um, I could go on explain, I'm working on an article talking about poetry in the 21st century, and I was talking about drama, um, that is, lines spoken by actors on stage. And there is realistic drama, on the one hand, in which characters talk, they do their, actors do their best to talk, like we talk, like we act and talk in normal life. And then on the far side, um, there are um, musicals and operas. Mm -hmm. And then I place poetry in the middle, in this special space between highly emotive um, and um, usually focused on just one theme, songs in a musical, say, and then real-life prose on the other. And poetry's there in the middle, and it has the mixture of the heightened emotional sense from musicals and opera, and it has the subtlety and the versatility of the language we use every day. Mm. It was wonderfully described. So why is it important? Why is it important poetry? For me, it's always been important as just sort of, I mean, <laughs> the defining reason of my life. I had a special experience when I was 18. Um, I remember I was looking at the words of a poem in Latin. I didn't know Latin at the time, but right. it was like every synapse in my brain fired at once and I could feel the lightning jumping from lobe to lobe in my brain. And um, since then, I mean, I just knew then I was going to write poetry for the rest of my life um, Mm -hmm. for better or worse, for richer or poorer, usually for poorer. And, um, and so for me, it's always been that um, sort of trying to recreate that heightened experience. But in general, and this applies, yeah, not just to me, but I would like to say to everyone in the world um, mm-hmm. that um, it, it, it gives readers a special reading space. Um, people are different in their reading lives than they are in their normal lives. And that's why I'm always so interested to find out when I meet different sorts of people, what sorts of literature they like. It's like mm. you're learning their other half. Their, you're learning their secret history. Um, mm. And so literature in general provides a space, right, in which people can explore um, desires and fantasies and, um, yeah, um, um, all, yeah, alternative lives they might have led, right? But poetry um, in particular is important in that it gives – not only um, a, compre- a compressed space for that, but also um, a space 
for heightened emotions. That is, um, we can't go around um, expressing heightened emotions all day long um, because, um, who knows, we might be thrown in the loony bin and we would make people very uncomfortable. But poetry creates a space in which we can have extreme and certainly heightened emotions, right? We can know what that experience is, and it's a safe space for us to explore that in. Um, And so all of those reasons, um, I think that poetry is important. If I may go on just for a little bit more, in this um, same piece I'm working on, I was um, writing about um, verse novels for young adults, the YA verse novels which are very, very popular. Nurse verse novels for adults do sell okay, but they've blown up for teenagers. Um, in particular, there's um, by Elizabeth Acevedo, there's um, the poet X, which um, has been very popular, and then um, a verse novel by Kwame Alexander um, called The Crossover that actually has been made into a Disney Plus TV series. Um, And those verse novels are particularly important for teens um, in that they do provide that private space that teens need as they differentiate themselves from their parents and from their peers and as they work out what sorts of people they're going to be as adults. And so I see poetry as being important for that reason, not not just for teenagers, but adults as well. All right. I'd also like to go back to the words of magic and incantations that truly intrigued me. Tell me more about those two words as they relate to poetry. Yes, when I had that first sort of epiphanic experience with um, just mumbling poetry in Latin that I didn't even know, um, it was to me then just a stream of sound. I didn't know what the words meant, but with the rhythm of the poetry. I'll re- actually recite those lines in Latin. Armo virum quecano, troiae qui primus aboris, italiam fato profugus, lawinique venit. Um, that's how they go in Latin. I didn't know what that mm-hmm. meant, but it didn't matter, right? Um, in that I recognized both that um, there was a certain elevation going on, right? That language was doing something that I'd never heard it do before. Um, And secondly, that it was um, because of its very rhythm that allows for some repetition and some substitution within that repetition. Um, Yes, as I said, incantatory and borderline hypnotic. Um, There's a technical word that scholars use hypnagogic. Um, I won't throw that one around very often. I, I don't throw that one around very often, I promise. But it means right. leading to a hypnotic state, hypnagogic. Um, and um, as I reflect on that um, experience, um, I always try in my own truth, yes, to create a similar, yes, hypnagogic um, experience for readers. And I associate that, yes, with, yeah, um, being in a sort of otherworldly state, uh, a non-normal, magical state. Mm. You know, you shared about high school, your experience. One of the questions that I ordinarily ask is, please share with us an experience, an early experience, where you learned that poetic language has power. Is there anything else prior to high school where poetry stood out in your thinking? Um, it's did 
early on for me, my parents got me. It was kind of funny. Um, they purchased for me um, a translation of Dante's Divine Comedy. I was too young to read it, and okay. actually, it was in it was in a Harvard edition that was published in like 1930. And so the language was really lofty and really archaic. It was a really clunky, awful translation, frankly, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but um, it was it, the very foreignness of the words. Um, and also, I, I, I'm willing to say this because I was very young at the time, like 13 or 14, the font, even the archaic font, and then there were a number of um, really spooky drawings by Gustave Doré. And mm -hmm. all of that, um, yes, was important to me as a sort of alienated teenager, right? Um, it was especially numinous, like the sense of the divine um, to me when I was very young. And um, also, yes, I guess since then, I mean, I try um, – I want to know all the words. I don't know all the words. Every day I discover words I don't know, especially because I don't cook. Words involved that are involved in cooking, like technical vocabulary. I don't yes. know the cooking vocabulary well. Also, words for fabrics, all those words for fabrics. I still am learning those. But that early experience with that alienating, archaic translation made me want to try to learn as many words as I could. Um, mm -hmm. And also gave me a sort of fondness for quaint and at times slightly archaic words. Mm -hmm. um, I'm fond, like just, just last week I discovered, I knew this word, but I didn't know the origin, the word dearth, D-E-A-R-T-H. Um, dearth, it just means a, a lack of, yes. of, of things. Um, mm -hmm. But I found this out, um, I love etymologies and word origins. It actually mm -hmm. was originally, it comes from German, it was originally just the abstract noun for dear, our word dear, like I love you dear. Originally mm -hmm. that means um, expensive, and dearth meant expensiveness. And then mm -hmm. I kept digging, and it meant expensiveness, that food was expensive because there wasn't any food supply. And so eventually it just comes to mean an absolute, a lack of food for everybody. But originally wow. it meant expensiveness. Um, and I just dote on weird, archaic words like that. Um, mm -hmm. And I've been trying. Um, I guess we can bring this around back around to Mr. Either or. Um, yes. To deploy those rare, okay, um, archaic words strategically. Um, of the, the kinds of poetry I write, Mr. Either or is the most accessible. I guess we can call it the most popular oriented of the works that I write. Um, and certainly um, the main character, you, is a He's just a 23-year-old dude, and he has no interest in school. And so mm -hmm. I'm not going to use all those fancy, poetic, archaic words. I'm not going to put those in his mind or in his mouth often. Um, mm -hmm. But other characters will use them, especially villains, when they want to sound <laughs> super sophisticated and creepy. And so I put dearth in the mouth of one of the bad guys. Okay. <laughs> what I'd like you to do for me. I'd like you to share again your opening piece, please. All right. Um, one moment. This is A is for Alfred. All right. Who is this massacre in embryo? 
the sea's bad seed, the son of suck and spin, the bastard offspring of our present rage? Reluctant for the moment, he will grow voraciously off Cuba. Weathermen will name him Alfred comes of age. Destined for greatness, he will carve a path through the renowned graveyard of the Atlantic, westward into our continental shelf. How perfect that a migrant child of wrath will lash the wrathful USA itself. Coasts will be lost, metropolises. Frantic lubbers will suffer from the mauled mare. See now the future, as if CNN were playing it before your vision live. A fetal revolution in the air, expanding, going category five, going for blood, going American. Thank you. All right. All right. Thank you. <laughs> the second time I was bored. <laughs> that was really the second time. That's why I always like hearing the story. <laughs> wow. Wow. Aaron, what was the purpose of that piece? What were you attempting to convey? Well, as in a in poetry, like in lyric poetry, um, yes. there's usually some outside personal motive, but it's strange. I learned in writing a novel and that you have to accomplish all kinds of narrative goals. But in mm -hmm. this one, I guess in my mind, there was a great deal going on. I wanted to set up both the hurricane and the pregnancy of um, the main female character, Li Ling Levine. Yes. She is the girl. Mm -hmm girlfriend of the main, main male character. Um, and throughout that first section of the novel, um, the, yes, the fetus growing inside of her um, is a little hurricane. And the hurricane in this section is um, like a fetus. It's just a tropical dis depression like we have right now, tropical depression Brett, which is moving yes. up um, towards Cuba. Um, and so it will grow eventually into a hurricane. Um, and there's a lot of interplay back and forth between the hurricane and Li Ling's pregnancy throughout that first section. And it is kind of scary. And in reflecting on, um, yes, that connection between the hurricane and the pregnancy, um, actually just before the show, I mean, mm -hmm. I realized that it's particularly resonant for me um, in that, I mean, I have never gotten married and I, I don't have any children. Um, and um, certainly there's a curiosity about what my life would be like um, if I had done that. And there's certainly a great deal of anxiety on my part. And so it does become very personal. Um, yes, a, a anxiety uh, at the prospect of being responsible for, um, for children. Um, mm. So that's all in there. And then also in terms of, yes, the, the hurricane moving in as a migrant on America, um, I don't want to get um, – 
political. Um, um, and, but certainly I wrote that section um, under our former president. And um, there was, um, there was, it was actually right around the time that there was um, a great deal of tension at the border in, in that, um, that former president um, was separating um, migrant parents from their children, sometimes infants. Um, and so, yes, that all made its way into that opening section as well. What inspired the book? When I first wrote Mr. Either Or, um, I wanted to write um, a contemporary American epic. Um, I guess I should say um, I felt there was a need for it um, in literature and also in terms of my development as a poet. As a poet. Um, mm-hmm. Right now in the 21st century, when we think about poetry, we mostly think of what I call lyric poems fairly short poems, usually under 50 lines and usually much less than that, right? They can be published on just one side of a page in, say, the New Yorker or a magazine like that. Um, And when people think of poetry, mostly they think of lyric. But in the past, um, and this is a lot of poetry that I like, poetry can do all sorts of things. It can tell epics like the Iliad and the Odyssey. It can tell whole stories. It can teach complicated subjects. I read a poem in which um, Aratus, an ancient Greek poet, teaches astronomy. Um, And certainly it can leap from the mouths of actors, right, Um, Mm -hmm. in, say, Shakespeare. And so I wanted, um, for my own sake, and also because I think it's good for literature, to try to recover narrative poetry for the 21st century. Um, And that, for me, um, meant doing it um, in genre fiction um, Mm -hmm. and writing something. Originally, I conceived of these verse novels as epics and in a way that would be a reflection of our um, American culture, like the Iliad is supposed to um, capture Bronze Age Greek culture. So I wanted my Mr. Either Ors um, to capture um, American culture at the time they were written, its its values, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. Well, I would like to share before we continue this part of the journey that I'm from the South. I hail from the South, and for me, it's either – Instead of either, so if I go oh, back and forth between, it. yes. <laughs> it's not. It's Fortunately, I never room. use either or either in a rhyming position. <laughs> okay, all right, man. All right, <laughs> I'm gonna throw it out. <laughs> so, with that in mind, the title. Tell me about the title. How did you come about choosing it? Oh, very well. Um, so, um, there is um. A Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, and I stole the title for him. He wrote um, a a philosophical work simply called Either Or, or Either Mm -hmm. Or. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, in that, he lays out um, two different tracks for life and two different personality types. Um, The aesthetic or the aesthete who's interested in arts and sensual pleasure, and then the ethical life on the other, and that person recognizes commitments and duties and obligations. And as Kierkegaard presents, it's, it's, it's one or the other. 
And so mm-hmm. in the course of these novels, um, then, um, the main character, Mr. Um, Ether or, um, <laughs> goes from, um, yes, having no obligations, um, other than his job, um, to suddenly having a, um, a wife and something to fight for besides himself. And then eventually, um, in this last section of the new novel, All the Rage, having a daughter, he has to protect as well. And so he goes from the either to the or. And then also um, it refers to simply the main characters. Um, yes, he is a spy. And so he has his regular identity. And then on the other hand, he has his or identity as a, yes, super spy. All right. Please share more from your work. All right. This is a section also um, from the first um, hurricane unit. Um, Yes. Um, And so here you, the main character, are running up Broadway in Manhattan. Um, All the subway trains have been shut down because of the hurricane and the, the city has been evacuated. And so you have no choice but to run home to try to save the life of your girlfriend, um, Lee Ling Levine. Desolation. No cabs to take, no cars to jack, and so adrenal in the driving rain, you are running north to the rescue, stud. Fast as you are, though, you feel defeat hard on your heels. That harpy threatening Leeling's life won't let her keep it. You've got to go and give yours anyway. Die, too, for your darling. Desolation. No gull is here to gape at you going through old Manhattan all alone. No Norway rat to note the splat of soggy converses on soaked sidewalks and flooded streets. The Strand Bookstore bobs by on your right with boards on its windows, and soon to your left, lights out and shuttered Chase Bank and Brenner's Chocolate Bar. General Washington, who won his war, is sitting in stirrups astride a steed in Union Square, while you, a young campaigner of note, a promising patriot, must face on foot a final failure. Guilt, what you've gotten your girlfriend into, wells up on Broadway near the Brooks Brothers. By the time you turn on 28th, you want what's coming. Wicked one. Thank you. Oh, wow. <laughs> what do you hope readers gain encountering your work, or this book in particular? Yes, I certainly, for other, for other works that I've written, um, <laughs> I do feel that there is, if not, I, I, don't, I hesitate, I don't try to teach anything. Um, with the works that I write, not in the traditional sense, at least. Mm -hmm. Um, I do try to import, I guess, impart some kind of information. But these works I made 
primarily to be blatant, blatantly escapist. That is, um, and that is part of the reason I, I, I put them in the second person. That is, mm-hmm. I wrote, rather than using I or he, I used you, so that the reader is forced, in a way, to identify with this main character and become this roughly, yeah, early 20-something dude his ages slightly during the course of the novels. Um, And so the intention was primarily to be blatantly escapist. Um, And part of it also um, was um, to encourage the escapism um, was to create um, in literature and hopefully literary literature something along the lines of a literary video game. Um, I don't, yes. And so when one plays a video game, often they're called first person shooter video games. One looks through the eyes of one's character. And usually the first thing that character does at the beginning of the game is look in the mirror so that you know what your character looks like. And then that doesn't happen again. And you go on looking through the eyes of your character. And so mm-hmm. I wanted this to be like that, immersive like that, and blatantly escapist, um, partly for the reasons we talked about before, that literature allows people to explore lives and emotions and characters who are other than themselves and to decide, mm-hmm. do I want to be more like that? Am I happy to stay the way I am? Do I want to meet more people like this character or that character? And in that sense, certainly literature is educational. Um, and so I wanted to take that tendency of literature and push it into overdrive in these novels by using, yes, the second person and um, the immersive Hmm. Please share another section. All right. I'll give you one of the villains. Um, And so this is um, a moment in which um, our main villain, Stavros Kennard, um, who is um, basically he's he's an anarchist. He just wants to create chaos in the world. And this is his um, origin myth explains why he likes causing chaos so much. Um, It describes him as a young man. Um, At this point, he has the flash drive that has the all-important information on it, and so he thinks he's won, and he's very, very happy. Let's turn now to the happiest man on earth, the least removed that he has been since birth, from perfect bliss, Stavros Canard admires trees that have toppled from the boulevard and dropped on cars, storefronts, and upper stories. He giggles through a windshield at live wires writhing and smashed glass, every poignant shard, and sodden lumps of vermin, and the glories of mud on streets, and promising young fires in high-rent towers. Such joy he feels, such joy on this the morning of his great success. Like any child, he loved to make a mess. Hyper at choir practice, he would sing off pitch on purpose. He dismembered toy heroes while cackling in ecstasy. 
Still, he was just a naughty little boy, a brat, a nuisance. He was not yet strange. Then came his sexual awakening. One day, alone, he felt intense arousal while watching a tsunami on TV. Then Stavros hankered to do more than tousle a playmate's well-combed hair and disarrange the volumes in the public library. So he began his villainous career, fomenting anarchy in gay Paris, had triumphs and defeats year after year, and then this morning, like a hedonist anticipating just before a tryst, a gonzo Eden of ecstatic sex, he revels in the prospect of a welter of ruinous, dystopian effects, reducing humankind to free-for-all infighting, feud and famine, helter-skelter. This is the world he itches to be in. He is the cure. He is the wrecking ball. He is the happiest that he has ever been. Thank you. Oh, you know, you, the way you read, the, the, the way you read, you remind me of Orson Welles when he was reading the Mercury <laughs> Thank Theater. You. <laughs> You really do. So what I want to know, because I can really tell you enjoy what you do in terms of sharing your work. What is the relationship between your speaking voice and your written voice? Unfortunately, well, it's a blessing and a curse. I have a really, really I have a really loud outside voice, and okay. I do get shushed on occasion because my voice okay. is kind of big. Um, but also my internal voice is really, really loud like that, too. Um, and so I hear my own voice in my head. It's kind of, I don't know, for better or worse. And so they're very close. I'd actually never thought about that before. Um, but um, I imagine as I am composing, I guess there's very little difference. And okay. I actually, this will be interesting. I, I belong to a writing space in Manhattan called Paragraph. Um, um, writers go there to do their work. It's like a gym membership. You pay a monthly fee, and then you get 24-hour access to mm -hmm. this um, writing room. But there's the quiet space in which nobody can make any noise whatsoever, and people just type away. And then there's the cafe area um, where people can talk and get coffee and stuff. And I end up working in the cafe more, and I realized it's because I mumble to myself as I'm writing. Um, and so as much as possible, I try not, uh, I guess when I'm working, I do this, I've only realized this lately, not just to be words floating in my head that I then type out, but I go, I, in, in every way I can, I try to make what I'm writing um, audible or even palpable. And so um, almost obsessively, I'll print out a section that I've written, and sometimes I'll do, um, other poets talk about this, a cut-up. Um, I'll take it apart line by line with scissors, and then I'll play around with rearranging the lines, and that makes the experience of composition um, tactile as well. Um, and so... 
I guess from the very origin, there's an um, aural, A-U, yeah, the ear-oriented aspect of the work, and that I try to make it palpable as well. Um, and so different lean in different ways. Um, some mm-hmm. emphasize more the visual, um, yes. and others emphasize more the auditory. And I certainly belong to the second category. Um, in that the way the lines are presented on the page are pretty traditional. Um, Mm -hmm. It's rare that I'll do an artful line break or um, use um, spacing in some radical way, but I try to use sounds in a radical way. So as you think about your work, this particular book, in terms of the poetic devices that you most employed, what would you say? What did you use mostly? Rhyme, I certainly use, and then also um, a fair amount of alliteration. Um, In some instances, the alliteration is built into the form that I am using. Um, I like, (laughs) excuse me, rhyme partly um, to get back to something we talked about before because it enhances the incantatory effect of the verse, and then also you can use it end rhyme to link lines and to close off a section. And so it's part of the whole sonic organization, I would like to think, of a passage. But then alliteration, which is using the same consonant or vowel sounds. I'm sure you know, but I'm just giving information for the general audience. Um, In the action scenes, I use the meter of um, Beowulf. Um, Old English Beowulf, which is actually written in what's called alliterative verse, four stress lines in which you have to alliterate on two or three of the stressed um, syllables. And so in Old English, it be, um, Beowulf begins, What we are in yer dayum of chilled sheffing sheath in a freatum. You know, it just sounds amazing. Um, And that worked well for the action scenes in that I imagine them being, um, well, I guess it's it's an old movie now, but being like the fight scenes in that movie, The Matrix, of which I'm very fond, in which they're not just fight scenes, but they're choreographed dance scenes as well. Um, And so I like the variation between the more expositional sections, um, which are in rhymed iambic pentameter, and then the action scenes, which go switch to the meter of Beowulf. Now, do you view yourself as being more of a storyteller or more of a wordsmith or a combination of the two? I've become more and more of a storyteller, but I guess I would have to come down on the side of wordsmith. Um, Certainly, uh, most of the books I've, um, the other books that I've published have been collections of lyric poems rather than narrative poems. But um, what I want, I guess I want to use my wordsmithery, whatever I have of it, um, to write in every single genre. Uh, of poetry, and I see those as being lyric, and then narrative, and then dramatic as well. And mm-hmm. so I wrote a play in verse, but I wasn't happy with it, and so it'll never okay. see the light of day. But All I right. will try again. Um, and I would like to try um, 
I would like to see, I'll say, um, here on Broadway in New York City, um, a verse drama that's not Shakespeare, an original 21st century verse drama. Um, and there are some sections, um, say, in the popular musical, in the musical Hamilton, Yes, get pretty close, but that is still um, it's a variation of musical songs, and then there are some rap sections. And people do talk about a lot about how um, similar rap is to poetry, and I completely agree. But they're different in the sense that rap has a beat in the back, and then the person speaking the lines does variations on the rhythm over those beats. Whereas, as I see it in poetry as opposed to rap like spoken word or uh-huh. any kind of poetry, the poet has to both imply the beat and do the substitutions all at the same time. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a brief break, but there's a question I'd like you to answer after the break. Just give you an opportunity to kind of think about it. When you write, I don't want to phrase this. You talked about the importance of escapism. All right. And it makes me wonder if it hurts you to write poetry. If not, why not? That's my question. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. are the poems that are that are 
agonizing, yes. Um, but then in the end, when they come and you're done with them, it's kind of a great release. And so I compare those poems, the ones that are very personal and that hurt. Um, writing those is what I imagine going through labor is like for a female, mm. right? Okay. Um, and that it is, yes, I've been told it's very painful, especially without an epidural, right? Yes. But then when you're done, there is this bliss and there is an infant there as well um, and great warmth and happiness. And so the ones that hurt, yes, are like going through labor. Um, other poems, um, I write on a variety of subjects and they're not always personal. Sometimes writing a poem um, it's true, it's, it's more like an irritation um, mm -hmm. in that there is, you have an itch and you scratch and scratch and scratch at it until finally, ah, got it. That itch isn't <laughs> there any longer. Um, and so the majority of poems for me are like that, um, scratching mm -hmm. an itch and then finally being able to relax. And All then right. once in a while, it's like going through labor. <laughs> All right. Okay. Please share some more of your work. Um, I will. Um, this is um, another brief hurricane section um, about um, the storm itself hitting Manhattan. Um, it's simply called Alfred in Manhattan. And before I begin, um, we were talking about childhood experiences with poetry, and yes. there's one here as well. I'll mention this. Um, the, the first section is called A is for Alfred that I read, and I should have mentioned this before. When I was like five or six and just learning how to read, I had this book called The A to Z of Batman. <laughs> and it went through the, it was an abecedarian. It went through the whole alphabet, A through Z, and it talked about things that were relevant to Batman. Um, and the first thing was A for Alfred, Batman's butler. And yes. the last thing was Zoom for the sound that the Batmobile made. I still remember yes. it to this very day. Um, and so I always think of, yes, the A to Z of Batman when I come across the name for this hurricane, Alfred. High up Manhattan climbs the angry sea. Goodbye, South Ferry. Goodbye, Battery. The harbor house has foundered. The whole park joined the dominion of the squid and shark. Cheers are bad. The Dow is going down. While someone's sleep, or is it Noah's Ark, without a helmsman, without flag or sails, is bobbing up canal in Chinatown. The trees that stand are rising in the gales. Bicycles, chairs, trash cans, and signage, all loose things lift up lift off and wheel into a wall or spin away into the troposphere. If anarchy is hell, then hell is here. Thank you. <laughs> when you wrote this book, what were you thinking in terms of accessibility and how important was accessibility to you? How hard should someone need to work to understand the sections in this book? 
I this is the most accessible of the works that have written uh, that I've written. Um, and other mo- more recent lyric poems, I've actually gone out of my way to include very just once in a while. I don't use a lot of them. Um, a really quaint moment when I'm trying to get some when I'm trying to push the poem. Um, mm-hmm. But in this work, which I modeled both on, well, epic and on pulp fiction, um, I wanted it to be very, very accessible. And Mm -hmm. part of that is a reflection um, of the fact that, well, many of the sections are from the perspective of just the 23-year-old kind of dude. Um, He's enrolled in college as – yeah, um, part of his um, his identity. Um, yes, though he's actually a spy, but he's flunking out of school and he doesn't have any interest in it. Um, mm-hmm. And so I wanted this book in particular um, to be highly readable. I want readers to be able to buzz through it. They've, and I've been I've been told, thank goodness, um, that those readers who have reread sections, at least of the first either or, have found Mm -hmm. greater depths in it on rereading. But I wanted it to be, I mean, part epic and part airport novel, like you buy a James (laughs) Patterson novel before you you get on a flight and finish it before you're done. Um, And so um, highly, highly accessible. And part of that is just a whole... um, instinct that I have in my work and part of what I feel is my responsibility for poetry. Um, I don't want to point fingers, um, but for a variety of reasons in the 20th century, poetry lost a lot of popularity. It was still fairly popular in the 19th century, and there were best-selling poems and best-selling poets. but partly, and I understand and even and enjoy this poetry very much, but um, some instincts um, in the part of um, modernism and postmodernism um, pushed um, poetry away from the general audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and the result, I don't want to get too much into it, is that largely now um, poetry, I see it, um, as surviving only – I talk about it like wild, like endangered wild, wildlife, right? That right. poetry pres- um, survives um, only in preserves, um, like endangered animals, and these preserves are academic institutions and MFA programs. Um, and given that environment, um, the academic environment, um, poems are set up to be studied – even before they are to be enjoyed. And, sec- and secondly, then they're, they're separate from the space that the general reader inhabits, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to find books of poetry in the college bookstore library um, and in the college uh, bookstore, sorry, in the, co- in the college library and in the college bookstore, perhaps. But you're not going to find books of poetry in the Hudson News at the airport bookstore, <laughs> Um, And so my instinct in in making this book accessible um, was to try to push poetry um, beyond um, not not it's not exclusive, but beyond academia back Mm -hmm. out of the preserve into the wilderness. Right. Um, Yes. That the general reader inhabits. Mm. Question for you. How long did it take to write this particular book? 
this book came pretty quickly. Um, I wrote it um, in about um, – it took about a year, um, about okay. six months each section. There are two villains, and um, slightly – there's about six months between the two sections, and an infant is born between them. Um, and that was comparatively quick. quick. I, I would like to think that this is the sequel to the first Mr. Either-Or, um, mm-hmm. that I happened on a manner, um, yes, a method um, that worked in the first. And so I was able to expand on that in the second. And that is the variation between the expositional rhymed sections and the action scenes in alliterative verse. But you oh, know yeah. that first Mr. Either-Or, that took me about 10 years to write. Ten years. Um, and about six or seven of those years were just unsuccessful experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem is, and the problem with many verse novels, um, that, I mean, the, yeah, when, when poets try to do narrative, is that they lose track of the story and they actually lose themselves in details. They'll lose, they'll lose themselves in descriptive passages when they should, in fact, be advancing a plot. And so the instincts for a storyteller are often a completely different skill set from the instincts for a lyric poet. And I had to um, yes, so I would like to think develop that skill set for narrative. And I, I did it in the following way. When I felt like I wasn't, um, I would get paragraphs or stanzas, excuse me, that I liked, but nothing that really worked as a narrative. And what it only started to work for me, that first Mr. Either-Or novel, when I storyboarded out the whole plot, um, mm-hmm. as, for example, um, people do when they're making a film and they'll have the various scenes that have to be made. And then I told myself, because I wanted to be free as a poet, and I wanted at the same time to make sure I was advancing the plot. And I would open up a Word doc on my computer, just one page. I couldn't go past one page. And I would say, Aaron, you can go crazy, as crazy as you want poetically, right? As long as you, in the space of this page, accomplish this one major narrative goal, right? If you get, And that way I was able to find a balance between um, being a storyteller and being, yes, um, yes, a lyric poet who wanted to be descriptive. And then once I finally got that method with the storyboard and the single-page um, word docs, I was able finally to make progress on the first Mr. Either-Or. And so I felt that for the second one, um, yes, I would do that. But then I expanded on it um, in a couple of different ways, added more perspectives than that of just you, the main character. What did writing both verse novels do to you as a thinker? Poets, um, W.H. Auden says, um, are, um, well, he said, talk about this in a, a, a long poem called The Letters to Lord Byron. They tend to be self-absorbed. He, he's generalizing himself, right? right and right. they tend to um, lose, uh, yes, to to go for slick and easy generalizations, he says, slick and easy generalizations. And so when you are writing um, a verse novel, a novel, 
Um, and you have all these characters moving about and interacting, you need to become a kind of psychologist. And so it was good for me. Um, I, I very rarely write poetry, partly because of these verse novels, I rarely write poetry from my own perspective any longer. Mm, Um, I'll either describe things objectively or I'll write in character voices. Part of this has to do with doing a lot of translation that I have done. And part of it has to do with these verse novels in that it's part of the, I guess, as I see it, the whole escapist venture I was talking about suddenly having to write, um, yeah, in the voices of characters who are not only not likely, like you, but sometimes the exact opposite of you, and sometimes yes. even, of course, of a different gender. Um, and so it's really healthy um, for poets of, yes, of whichever gender or orientation to do what I call writing in drag. Um, that is where you, if you're a male, you write, um, yeah, for a while, um, a series of poems from a, a female perspective or a female from a male perspective. And I first discovered this trick that it was healthy and good for my poetry in terms of broadening the, my horizons um, when I translated um, the ancient Greek poet Sappho, um, mm-hmm. the mother, one of the mothers of lyric poetry. Um, and so I spent, um, my goodness, a whole year and a half of my life um, writing from the very intense and passionate perspective of um, Sappho. Okay. So are you saying that poetry does not have a sex? Um, I'm sorry, that it does not have a sex. What is the sex of poetry? A, sex. a question that I've, that I've often asked. What is the sex of poetry? Oh, you say got it. Not that. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Um, hey, hey. That's, why they me the <laughs> that's why they paid me wow, the big Wow, that's a really cool question. Um, hey, you and it's, yeah, it's really interesting to think about, um, given our yeah, current cultural discussion of, yes, masculinity or femininity and, um, yes, um, other possibilities. Um, that's interesting. Um, in that Sappho, for example, whom I translated, though certainly very female, um, has a number of traditionally masculine ways of approaching and seducing other people. And then there are all the cliches that go back even to ancient Greek poetry of male poets being effeminate, for example, um, for um, writing poetry at all. Um, and so there is in the whole conception of someone being female or male and writing poetry, at least going back historically, a fair amount of gender bending. And so there is an ancient, there's a word from ancient Greek called epicene, right. <laughs> and okay. it means of both genders. And so I will say that poetry is most certainly epicene and most certainly gender fluid. Right. All right. Please share some more of your work. All right. I will read um, uh, one of the um, a section from the second half of um, Mr. Either Or. In that second half is um, there is a villain Malachi Macan. 
Um, and he, um, as the villain, um, he's a, a super genius, and he has read this Chinese text that predicts the end of the world. And he wants to bring that about for a variety of reasons, partly because he's been so mistreated. At this point, Malachi Makan has broken into your apartment where you live with Li Ling, and he has actually, you've actually been shot in the shoulder, and you are down and out. And so your girlfriend, or now your wife, Leeling Levine jumps into action and um, is actually strangling him. She has her um, arm up under his throat and is strangling him. And this section is what he sees, what he hallucinates as he is breathing his last breaths. A man and his dog. What Malachi Makan perceives while dying is not lost love or flickers from his youth, but foreign imagery that glows like truth, and he relaxes. In his eyes, two scrying crystals, there is a man, a failed believer, who keeps a junkyard in a desert place. The man is coughing, and his black retriever has jumped up on the bed to lick his face. The dog, he named it Bud, showed up one day and watched the man and begged a curious stray till scraps left out developed into trust and mutual touch became a sort of love. Why here? Why them? What are they symbols of? Who knows? But now the junkyard man has died, and after three days lying by his side, Bud wanders off into the desert dust. The villain, choking, sees this scene by scene, dies with it in his eyes. What does it mean? except that even lost souls, in the end, deserve the love of someone. Call him man's best friend. Thank you. Wow. You know, Aaron, I'm a retired professor of counseling, and we often talked about escapism as a mental health problem, potentially, because... Mm. With escapism, you're primarily, quote, leaving the world or leaving whatever scenario, whatever situation it is, to find comfort in a fantasy world. But in a real world, we live in a world where there's good, bad, ugly, as well as indifferent. So what I'd like to know, sir, is what do you view in the role of a, in modern day society? Wow. And, and yes, and in relation to escapism. Um, certainly, um, I talked about how um, I would like to think that poetry opens up, um, um, to use more terminology um, from therapy, um, opens up a private and safe space um, for teens, for example, through those YA verse novels um, to define their own difference from other people and to, um, yes, um, define the sort of person they'll become as an adult. But it becomes different, I think. Literature becomes different 
for adults in that we are fully formed. And certainly as we get older, um, it often feels, I don't know if this is true, that it's harder and harder to change, to become some completely different person, or even to change a little bit uh, (laughs) seems increasingly difficult. Um, And so even for adults, um, and it may have even more of an escapist role for adults who tend to be more set in their ways. Um, Literature in general and poetry um, in particular, and I think with greater intensity, um, allows um, people who frequently, um, yes, um, for a variety of reasons, aren't comfortable expressing intense emotions or emotions or um, aren't in a situation in which they are free to do so, um, to have um, a full and rich um, emotional life. And that um, through exploring those possibilities um, of the, yeah, the different um, intense emotions one can have and also different sorts of characters one can have, also even, um, yes, to change, however slightly, um, who they are. Now, has a poem you've written, maybe in this particular book or the newest one, ever humbled or frightened you? Yes, um, a number of times, and it happens um, most often. It happens for him um, in the second half of the book, and this is related to my own fear, um, when he has to confront fatherhood. He's had a fair amount of experience as a super spy, and he Mm -hmm. is um, pretty confident and indomitable. Um, But when he um, has to, um, yes, both express emotion openly with Li Ling and confess that he loves her and that he wants to marry her. He is the one who proposes, though she, though she is usually in charge. And then <laughs> later on, um, yes, when in fact um, his pregnant um, girlfriend Li Ling um, in the first section is being held at gunpoint by one of the villers, villain's henchmen, um, he is completely emotionally vulnerable and humbled, and whereas he's elsewhere never willing to give up and always ready to fight, he, in that instance, um, when he's um, forced to be um, recognized that he's a father and that he has responsibilities, um, he is willing to just give up and give his life in order to try to save his girlfriend. Um, And then once towards the end of the second section, um, he has to choose between the man he is protecting. Um, He's compared in a simile to a secret service agent protecting a president. He has to protect this man. And yet there is a villain in the room who's also threatening his wife and daughter. And so he's overwhelmed by the responsibilities that he has, um, both as, yes, um, a hero and protector, and then also um, as a husband and a father. And so more than any of the villains humbling him, um, Mm -hmm. it is his paternal duties that humble him. The most. Wow. You know, we've reached the time in the program that I view as my personal favorite. I view it as being a mini poetry concert. This is an opportunity for you to share whatever you like without interruption from me. 
No questions. All right, I will do so. <laughs> um, All right, you're on stage. Um, here we have. Um, I'll, yeah, I will read this section. Um, in the second section of Mister Either or. Um, the Hudson and the East Rivers that surround Manhattan have been flooded with transformer oil. And there is then um, a girl, I feel like I know her. I, I gave her the name Claire Custer, but she's lot, like a lot of people I know, and she bikes on top of the Brooklyn Bridge um, that connects um, the East River to um, Brooklyn, and she smokes a cigarette, and then she drops, she drops the still-lit cigarette um, into um, the East River, and the transformer oil catches fire, and both of the rivers catch fire. Born and bred in Rocky Ridge, Utah, has ridden her beglittered bike through Chinatown and up the Brooklyn Bridge. Once at the top, she lights a lucky strike. A British friend has given her the path and leans her forearms on the iron railing. Why is she blissful? Why at peace in spite of shattered freeways and the power failing? Because the big night sky at last is back. It's easy to forget how very black space is when one is reveling in the gaudy ecstasy of Manhattan every night. She squints a while, and scattered points of light gather themselves for her into Orion, the skewed head and interminable body of Draco, either bear, the swan, the lyre, even the dolphin and the lesser lion. When her cigarette is almost done, she drops the still-lit butt, a smidge of fire over the railing. Time to go to bed. But holy, an eruption has begun beneath her. There is rumbling on the water, and orange there. An exhalation hotter than any earthly breeze has singed the air. Just look at that. The liquid blaze has spread so far already up and down the river. Already flames have found the bars and stores that line the South Street seaport. Claire, oh Claire, you new Prometheus, you shy fire giver. Why have you up and peddled off instead of staying to admire this work of yours? Thank you. Oh, wow. Will there be an audio version of this book? Any of your work? I recorded an audio book, uh, yeah, for Audible of the first Mr. Either Or. And mm -hmm. I am in the process of negotiating um, for sound studio um, space at this very moment. And then oh, also, wow. um, yes, I'm working on finding um, an audiobook producer. Um, it nice. is sort of like making a film. Um, yes, and I... the audio, the producer I worked with for the first Mr. Either or audiobook was a lot of fun. She was a voice actor herself. 
and okay. gave me a lot of um, suggestions. I mean, I, yes, I mean, I worked on my voice to be an actor when I was done, but I, 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 I'm not an actor. I have a great respect for them, real actors that spent their lives, um, yeah, working on their trade. And so I'm somewhere between being a real actor and being a ham with a really loud voice. <laughs> um, <Okay. laughs> All right. <laughs> Question for you. You've written in so many different genres. Do you think you were meant to be a writer? Um, I'm sorry. I've written in so many genres and... Do you think you were meant to be a writer? Um, I I have to say I do. It's sort of um, overconfident, perhaps, to say so. Um, no. But, I mean, I couldn't have been anything else. After I had that experience when I was 18, reading those Latin lines, um, it was sort of – it wasn't even that I decided I was going to be a writer. It's that it was decided that I was mm. going to be a writer. Um, mm -hmm. And my goodness, I'm 49 years old now, and I'm going to turn 50 on July 25th. Um, right. And so, yes, it's been a rough ride. And I'll be honest, I have been pretty dang poor um, for most of my life. But I'm not, mm -hmm. I don't complain about that very often, at least. Um, <laughs> in that, right. um, you know, um, so I, I have right. a, I've had a fair amount of time to write, and I'm grateful mm -hmm. for that. Um, you know, given the sorts of jobs that I've had um, and the very low cost of living um, that I've kept, um, I've been very protective of my time to write. Um, and so, yes, I don't have any regrets, but there are times, yes, um, when the bank account gets low that I wonder, well, maybe I should have gone into computers. Um, but those times, those times are very few. Um, right. And certainly, um, I did try to work in computers briefly and got restless and just wanted to be a poet again. What surprises you most about being a writer? Uh, I'm sorry, what, what's the thing I like the most? What, what surprises you most about being a writer, a poet, uh, again, translator? What surprises you most? Um, my goodness. Um, yeah, what do I take home from it? Um, is, that, is, that, is, that, is that what you're asking? Yeah, like, what, the satisfaction essence, I get? Yes, yes, in essence, yes. Um, my goodness. And so... Certainly, I look at it now, certainly since I'm about to turn 50, um, mm -hmm. partly there is, there is daily pleasure certainly involved both in reading um, and reading other people's literature, rereading my own literature to make sure that it, I have it right. And then even in the process of writing, though we talked earlier about how it can be an itch to scratch or even like the painful process of going through labor, right? Um, and so there certainly is satisfaction both on the completion of the work and then even in the process, there's knowing that one is doing what one's supposed to do and that one, now I'm, I've gotten more confident that I can, if I stick, stick to it, um, mm. usually um, get to a point where I'm satisfied with what I've written. But also, um, what I don't want to have, um, what I've always been really worried about, even since I was young, is that when I'm old, I don't want to have any regrets. Um, mm -hmm. That when I'm, yes, on, say, my deathbed, I don't want to look back on my life and say, 
if only I had spent more time on my poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I spend a lot of time on my poetry so that I hopefully um, <laughs> won't, yes, have any regrets. Wow. You know, there's so many more questions, and this is just one for the road. What do you think your work conveys about being human? You don't have to answer now. We can talk offline about that particular one. Where do you go from here next? Wow, that that is a tough question. I finished a <laughs> bunch of projects. Um, Did you? And so right. um, I'm an, I'm at the point right now um, where I, I, I again we're talking about um, we talked about labor earlier and the satisfaction mm-hmm. of giving labor. Um, and so to keep up with that analogy, I'm at the point where I'm trying to avoid what I call postpartum depression, um, mm. where I finished <laughs> something major and I was used to working on it obsessively all the time, and now it's really done. There's nothing more yes. I can do with that particular project. And so I'm casting about for new things to do. Inevitably, there will be another collection of poems um, after American Divine um, that came out in 2021. But there's no rush for that. I almost have enough poems for that now. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I am actually, yes, yearning for some big new project to work on that can um, center me and focus my time. And so, yes, I'm very much in an um, in the middle phase. And so certainly there will be another um, collection of lyric poems. And then next, um, I'm looking for a publisher for that you know, the book I just finished, um, which is a series of immersive tours of Central Park in four books that go through space and time and talk about true crime and, yes, the history, the history of the park and things like that. Um, it's maybe the most marketable book I've ever written. Um, and I guess that's why I'm having the most trouble publishing it. Um, <laughs> right. we <should> see. <laughs> Where can we purchase your work? Where can we purchase either, either or, and the rest of your catalog? And so um, you, you can – I have a website, um, www my name, AaronPuchigian.com, but since Puchigian is so difficult to spell, um, it's caused trouble for people in the past. You can also um, just go um, to Amazon.com, and you can find um, – if, if you type in my name there, you'll get the full selection of my original works and my translations. Wow. Well, I'd like to thank you for being my guest. Uh, I read a review of your work, and the person said that – Aaron Pujigian is not as famous as he should be. And I concur. You write incredibly well. Thank you very well. much for saying so. <laughs> <laughs> you, write, you write incredibly well. And, and just uh, I recently turned 60, so now I feel that I'm too old to tell lies. So when I say something, I mean it. I want to thank you for thank being you. my guest And I'd like to invite you to come back and grace us again with some more of your work from your new, your next collection. You always have a home here, Aaron. Thank you very much, Michael. All right. Well, to the listeners, as I share with you every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, everybody. Good night, Aaron. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, 
and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.